Well, stand with me as we rise to read God's Word together. If you have a Bible, I hope you do, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, you can feel free to use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 200, or actually 986. And we come to pass the halfway mark in Paul's five-chapter first letter to the Thessalonians today as we want to study verse 17 of chapter 2 all the way through the end of chapter 3. So let me read that portion of God's Word for us and, and pray then for our time and we'll begin together. So listen now as God speaks to you through His Word. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For we now live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly day and night that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands together. Let's pray once again. Our Father, we do ask that you would bless our study of this word today, that you would use it to build us up by your spirit into Christ's likeness, that you would knit our hearts together in love, that we might be encouraged through your truth, that we also might be established in our faith to stand strong in the midst of whatever suffering or affliction you send our way. Help us then to hear with eagerness and with earnestness, knowing that you have never promised that we will hear another sermon. Help me to preach boldly and clearly as you say I must, knowing I'm not promised to preach another sermon. So let us hear as dying people, and for me to preach as a dying man, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was about 20 years ago that a Harvard sociologist named Robert Putnam published a book that has since become a landmark in the field. 
It was titled Bowling Alone, and the subtitle was The Collapse and Revival of American Community. And his thesis in that book was so profound and prophetic that now we would look back on it and think it altogether quaint. Because what he had done for a few years as he was researching various aspects of American life, he was saying that the American culture is moving from communal sensibilities to isolated and individual ones. And more so than you might remember, perhaps, that was a little bit up for grabs 20 years ago when it's altogether totally normal in our time. So as his title alluded to, his kind of overarching metaphor for the entire research and set of conclusions was that, yes, about 20 years ago, more people than ever were bowling, and more people than ever were bowling alone, no longer in community leagues, because people just wanted to do their own thing. And so he took his research, and he took his questions, and he took his interns and other workers to take this subject and apply it to church life. What might be the realities of community in God's community here in America? And he quickly found that where previous generations would say something like 50% of them would say they found meaningful community in the local church. By the year 2001, that number had plunged to less than 20%. And surely in the intervening 20 years, it's plunged even further. I think we're right to assume it hasn't skyrocketed in recent years in our time. And I tell you that because what we come today in our study of 1 Thessalonians, we come today to a text all about what healthy, godly community looks like. And I wonder what word you might use. I wonder what descriptions you might use when you think of a healthy church community. Perhaps, if someone was to ask you today, use one word to describe your experience of community in God's church. What word would you use? Some of you might say a word like frustrating. Often doesn't do what I want it to do. It often goes in a way different than I would want it to go. Or perhaps you might use a word that's more like inconsistent. Sometimes it's good and other times it's not. Some of you might say something like, that's pretty decent. You know, it's generally life-giving and encouraging. I tend to leave the fellowship of God's people edified. So kids, it may be even a good conversation you can have with your parents over lunch today. What words would you use to define your relationship to the local church? We're going to see what Paul's relationship was to the local church there at Thessalonica today. We're going to see also, likewise, what the relationship of that local church was to its leaders, Paul and Silas and Timothy, And as we've said in recent weeks, whenever you come to Thessalonians, you want to remember that Paul has said right from the very outset of this book that this is something of a a model church. He said that their reception of the gospel and the powerful preaching of God's word, it was an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And so there are various points in which this letter, and as we turn to it, you want to recognize God through his spirit is wanting us to conform to the likeness of Christ present there at Thessalonica. And so our theme then today is the healthy church community, or perhaps said a little bit differently, what are the qualities that belong to a healthy church community, to healthy relationships in the local congregations? So three simple words to guide our way through the text today. The first word is concern, the second word is comfort, and the final word at the end of chapter 3 is coming. 
But before we get to Paul's concern, you want to remember, because it's helpful context for what's getting ready to come, you want to remember, if you perhaps haven't heard it before, perhaps you forgot it from a few weeks ago, how this church was planted. You remember Paul and Silas, they came preaching in the synagogues locally, and their preaching had immediate success, which stirred up the immediate envy of Jewish leaders. And so those Jewish leaders, they took these wicked men, Acts tells us, they formed a mob, they whipped them up into a riot, and they drove God's apostolic team out from the city. And we don't know exactly how long Paul and Silas were there in Thessalonica. At most, it was something like eight months, and it could have even been far fewer months. So here then is a church planted, established in the gospel, but its leaders are quite quickly harried out of the town with no understanding of how things are going in Thessalonica. So Paul wants to know. So he has concern. Look at verse 17 into verse 18 of chapter 2. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. The language there of we were torn away, it's actually quite an intense verb. So other translations might say something like we were bereaved of you. And those of you that have known the loss of a loved one, that kind of bereavement, might understand the heart of Paul in this moment. Uh, But the word is actually more literally something like we were orphaned of you. So kids, if you can imagine the pain and the agony of being forcibly separated from your parents, always wanting to be back together, that's something of Paul's heart in this moment. He says again and again, uh, we've tried to get back to Thessalonica. We've tried to get back to you, to see you, to minister to you. But something, or or better said, isn't it, someone has stopped them. Look at the end of verse 18. He simply says, Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Now, we don't know, do we, how Paul knew Satan was doing the hindering, or what exactly it was that caused Paul to recognize Satan's hindering work. All we know is that Satan was doing some hindering work. Maybe it was because certain scholars would posit things like Paul had this affliction or illness that uh, didn't allow him to travel. Or maybe it was this ongoing Jewish opposition and persecution of the church there. Perhaps it was something as simple as this local magistrate in Thessalonica had placed a ban on Paul and Silas ever returning to town. Or maybe it was the ongoing constant chaos in the church at Corinth where Paul was at the time, and he just had to stay there to make sure that was all in order before he could get back to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, Whatever the reason was, we know that he says, again and again, Satan hindered us. Even that verb there of of hindered, it's this kind of intense one itself because it was later used in, in Greek language, speaking of an army that would chop up or destroy a road so the advancing enemy wouldn't be able to take them over. So it was basically just stopping the advance of your opponent. And isn't that so often what Satan does for God's church? Always seeking to chop up the road spiritually to impede the motion forward of of God's people. I wonder when was the last time you looked at a situation in your life and said, Satan is hindering me. Don't you know that in our Western world of the 21st century that we find ourselves far too enlightened to think that Satan does any hindering? You know, parents, do you train your children, speak about the world with your children in such a way they understand Satan is real? 
that he actually is warring against the church. That it's not enough, perhaps, for Paul to say that, yes, I'm sick, I can't get there. Satan is doing it. Now the Jewish authorities are going to kill me if I get there. Satan is doing it. So often we need to recognize that we fight against an enemy that is real. That's always wanting to stop our forward motion in the gospel, just as he did for Paul's. And so it seems as though, in verse 19 and 20 of chapter 2, uh, lest the Thessalonians think Paul's affection for them and desire to be with them is small, notice what he says. He reveals his unvarnished heart, doesn't he? Verse 19 and 20, For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. There's a relationship there that's so acute, that's so full of affection, that after only a few months of being together, Paul can say to this young church, you're our joy, you're our glory, you're our crown of boasting. Which I think probably means that the last day when all of God's people who have persevered in the faith and received that conquering crown from Jesus Christ, as though Paul is going to say, what are these trophies of grace from my ministry? What are these signs of my faithfulness? But the Thessalonians who are all here too. And what are the signs of Christ's fruitfulness through me? But the Thessalonians that are all here too. If you continue steadfastly and with perseverance in Jesus Christ and likewise receive a a crown of victory at the end, what will be the fruits of, of your calling? What will be your hope? What will be your joy? What will be your glory at the last day? For Paul, he says to them, you're it. You're it. His concern, though, is not alleviated. You see, though, he continues in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3 to hatch a covert operation. So it seems as though he can't get back to Thessalonica for reasons we don't know. And so he says, Timothy, my young protege, you're going to do it for me. You're going to go behind enemy lines and tell me what's going on in Thessalonica. You see verse 2, Timothy is called our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. And he has a clear mission. He has a clear purpose. Verse 2 continues to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one may be moved by these afflictions. That word there of moved, kids, it was normally used in that time of dog tails wagging back and forth. So it kind of became this word picture of something swaying, something swerving along the way. And what Paul is saying is, lest you sway, lest you shake, lest you swerve under these afflictions, I I sent Timothy to establish you, to encourage you, to make sure you're, you're steady in Jesus Christ. So students, I don't know if you've ever had the chance or perhaps the courage, maybe even the foolishness, to climb a very high extension ladder. And perhaps you've got to the top before and, and you've felt what extension ladders do at such heights. It begins to wobble back and forth. And you call down beneath you, say, someone get down there and hold that ladder steady, lest I fall. And that's very much what Paul's design was for Timothy. Afflictions are striking the church there at Thessalonica. Timothy, go make sure you, you hold them steady. You keep them stable and steadfast. And it's not just stable and steadfast, Timothy. Also make sure they're not surprised, not surprised by what is happening. You see verse 3 into verse 4. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. 
just as it has come to pass and just as you know. We told you this was going to happen. Well, kids, what did Paul say was going to happen? Difficulty, hardship, affliction, suffering, persecution. Anyone who lives a godly life in Jesus Christ, Paul promises, will be persecuted. Now, some of you may perhaps be surprised by the suffering that often marks the Christian life. The affliction that seems to continually strike your heart. I hope you take something of instruction and even encouragement from God's word today that says, we are destined for this. One of the better known German theologians of the 20th century was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's best known because he became something of a martyr at the hand of the Nazis in the end of World War II in the 1940s. It was all throughout the 1930s and early 1940s that he stood against that satanic regime, refused to bow before them, and always was wanting to advance the cause of Jesus Christ. And uh, part of his labor produced this book that was called The Cost of Discipleship. And he said in that book, suffering is the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. When it comes, it is not an accident, but a necessity. I wonder if you've ever seen, if you've been called by Jesus Christ, suffering is a necessity for following your Savior. It's the spiritual sandpaper, isn't it, that God's Holy Spirit uses to make you shine after the image of Jesus Christ. For students, if suffering and affliction doesn't come, how are you going to know that your faith is genuine? Isn't it the testing of your faith that proves its trustworthy direction toward the Lord Jesus Christ? It's an easy thing to follow Christ when all is comfortable and well. But it's through suffering and affliction that you show He is your supreme treasure no matter what comes. And you can say like the old hymn does, let goods and kindred go. There's mortal life also, the body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. So Paul's concerned you see, even in verse 5, he's wondering, is Satan up to no good and tempting you to fall away? So he sends Timothy, and Timothy brings comfort. Notice Timothy's comfort beginning in verse 6 and 7. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. A good news it is to know that you are standing firm amidst that affliction. My anxiety has been lessened. I'm rejoicing. He's even, of course, by the end of this passage, going to abound in thanksgiving once again. In the midst of all of my distress and affliction, this is good news. You are still close to Jesus Christ. And I hope that you're like Paul in that way. Perhaps you've been in a season now or in recent memory through a season of suffering, hardship, and trial. And you might know that when God's people are in such a season, it can be quite difficult to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. For you think on my life, why has God not answered my prayers? But he seems to be answering every prayer of that family over there. Why, why do I have to go through that when everything so, seems so easy? For them over there. That's why godliness isn't it children. Not just grieving with those who grieve. But rejoicing. 
with those who rejoice. Uh, When you see someone being blessed in the midst of your hardship, can you in your distress and affliction find comfort in God's work in their life? Well, you see what Paul says now in verse 8, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Just a few weeks ago, I was visiting my maternal grandparents in Colorado who are increasingly aging. And so if you know how this often goes when you hang out with them and, and just converse about just updates in your life, invariably, especially as my kids are getting to know their great-grandparents and seeing them, you have these stories that are just told over and over and over. You know, when Jordan was your age, uh, when your dad was your age, and one of the ones that my Uh, Grandmother Koonsman often will tell the kids is, you know, when Jordan was your age, I was taking care of him at your Grammy and Pops' old house, and Grammy was gone, and I was doing something in the kitchen, and I quickly noticed that Jordan had disappeared. I couldn't find him anywhere. I looked around every bathroom, I looked around every bedroom, and I couldn't find him anywhere, and so I called his mom and said, I can't find Jordan anywhere. And of course, this was before the days of constant, instant communication. So my mom left wherever she was and made it all the way home. And still, by the time that my mom returned home, I can't find Jordan anywhere. So mom began to look. Bedrooms, bathrooms, closets, under tables, under chairs, behind beds. Can't find Jordan anywhere. And as the story has gone for decades now... My mom, at the end of herself, finally announced and summoned at the beginning or in the middle of the house, Jordan, Mark, Stone, you come out right now. And I think some imprecation followed. And evidently, I just summoned my way out of the garage where I had been hiding for the last hour, a hide-and-seek game that my great-grandmother or my grandmother knew nothing about. And you might have had situations like that before in your own life, perhaps as a parent or a grandparent, and know the degree to which anxiety is immediately relieved by knowing everything's okay. That's exactly what Paul has said in verse 8. The language there is something more like, we can now breathe again. At last, we have a new lease on life. You're standing firm in the faith. And many of you, parents and grandparents, you have close friends perhaps that are wandering from the faith, know what joy it is to hear that actually your loved ones, your friends, your family members are remaining steadfast in Jesus Christ. Kids and students, you surely know that there's nothing that brings your parents, your loved ones, your church leaders, your friends, if they're truly Christians, greater delight than to know that, yes, you're remaining steadfast in Christ. Which is why Paul bursts forth in thanksgiving. You see verse 9 and 10. For what thanksgiving can we now return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face. And supply what is lacking in your faith. Uh, We've mentioned before in recent weeks how Paul's tone of thanksgiving in this book really stretches the entirety of the first three chapters. That he's always abounding in gratitude to the Lord. He seems always keen to recognize how God's grace is working in another's life. And not only does he abound in thanksgiving to God for that grace working in another's life. Paul will often say, I'm so thankful that I see God's grace working in your life. Can you imagine the kind of joy that might permeate even a church like ours if you're always on the lookout for God's grace working in another's life? 
And not just returning thanks to the Lord for that grace, but also mentioning, hey, I'm so thankful that I see God's grace, His kindness, His truth working in your life in this way. So you have Paul's concern, you have Timothy's comfort, leads to a prayer that's ultimately about Christ's coming in verse 11 through 13. Uh, Like many of you and all the family is at home, we tend to get the kids ready for bed and then before they actually go off to their respective rooms, you know, we'll read a portion of of scripture together and uh, spend time praying. And several weeks ago, uh, wanting the children to always grow in the practice of what it means to pray somewhat lengthy prayers and perhaps even better said, sit through lengthy prayers with still hearts of reverence and devotion. I got this old book by William J. of Bath, who was one of the greatest English preachers of the 19th century. And this book is called Prayers for the Use of Families. So I just got a morning prayer and an evening prayer for each day of the week. And the prayers are pretty long. And the language is altogether archaic, so whenever I read through it, I just try to modernize it along the way. And uh, several nights back, it was actually probably a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, finishing the prayer, and after we said amen, Haddon, our third, remarked to me, Dad, all the prayer is is just Bible verses, one after the other. And I said, yes. And isn't that the best kind of prayer? For when you pray God's word back to him, you pray his promises back to him, you know that you're praying for God's will in your life. If you ever wanted a kind of text to memorize for your own prayer life, this would be a good one. Notice what he says in verse 11 through 13. This benediction that brings forth petitions. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So students, if you just stare at those three verses, you'll notice it's three simple petitions that Paul is bringing forth in the midst of this prayer of blessing. The first is that God and his power would tear down Satan's kingdom. Satan has opposed us again and again from getting back to you in Thessalonica. May the Lord direct our hearts once again to you. May he stop Satan. Secondly, it's a prayer, isn't it, of love that abounds not just between the church members, also the leaders along the way that they may prove that obedience of Jesus Christ that the world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And thirdly, isn't it, it's a, it's a prayer for sincere holiness that demonstrates their readiness for the coming of Jesus Christ. What qualities then might you say as you look at this text are true about a healthy church community? Let me give you three as we begin to close. Three things at least that uh, this text is revealing to us about what happens when God's Spirit truly works among God's church for the cause and the mission of God's sons. Number one, what you need to notice here at the end is that a healthy church community is one in which affection is noticeable. Affection is noticeable. And kind of read through the passage again. It wouldn't take you but just a few minutes. And notice how Paul's essentially doing throughout the entirety of his petitions, his concern, Timothy's comfort. He's saying, you know we love you. We know you love us. We're so desperate, aren't we, to see each other once again. This long-distance relationship really isn't working well. We want to be with you. 
And so what he's telling us is that the more intense your love is for Jesus Christ, the more intense will be your love for Christ's people. If you have little love for Jesus Christ, you're going to have little love for the church. If you have lots of love for Jesus Christ, you're going to have an erupting flame of desire for Christ's church. There's something that the Spirit's always growing in a faithful, healthy congregation is, is a love that's reflecting the love of Christ for his people, which is a love, isn't it? An affection that knows no limit, no bounds, that's beyond imagination or anything you could possibly fathom. And some of you are in here today and you've never experienced a love like this that says, I have desired greatly to see you. To, to be away from you is like a child being bereft of his or her parents. But I want you to know this good news of Christ's love. It, it comes forth in the ministry of the church, doesn't it? For it's in the preaching of Jesus Christ that you meet a Savior who out of an eternal bounty of love, he came sacrificially, willingly, and gladly to take the penalty that your sin deserves that he is the manifestation of God's eternal love. And then he calls you into a community that's always shaped by, surrounded by, saturated with the love of Jesus Christ. Some of you know this to be true. You've seen it, and you've perhaps been in a place where it wasn't present. But a healthy church community is always one in which affection Christ-centered affection is noticeable. Number two, a healthy church community is one that knows affliction is inevitable. It's going to come, Paul says. We are destined for this. So don't be surprised when things get hard. In my experience, too often, churches' peace and harmony and unity is disrupted because it seems as though church members think that everything is always going to be very comfortable. And you know as well as I do, it's never that way. It's through that difficulty and often the friction that belongs to the church that we learn what it means to abound in patience, what it means to abound in forbearance, what it means to live in unity and love with people whose consciences differ than our own. Don't be surprised when affliction comes. Some of you might have friends in your life that you went through a season of hardship. I have one of these friends in ministry. We were together on staff at a previous church for only two years at the most. And certainly 12 months, if not closer to 15 months of that two years was full of immense difficulty. And still to this day, I haven't seen him now in probably eight or nine years. But if I happened to cross him today and we had lunch, he's one of those friends that you could fall immediately back into conversation as though we saw each other yesterday. Such as the bond that affliction brings to God's people. So there's affection that's noticeable. There's a knowledge that affliction is inevitable. And thirdly, it abounds in prayers whose attention is on the eternal. It's a good thing to pay attention to Paul's prayers. Spirit-inspired, we can say, perfect prayers. And where is his attention always? Faith, hope, love, things that last. Because you see, even the coming of Jesus Christ to bring his people into his eternal rest. It bookends this passage. Don't you see that? Verse 19 of chapter 2. You are a crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming. Verse 13 of chapter 3. I pray that he would establish your hearts in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing reveals the true desires of our heart like our prayers do. Nothing shows the true attention of our soul like our 
prayers do. And the prayers of a healthy church community always have their attention on the eternal things. Always their attention on Jesus Christ himself. Because of course at its core as a church that's healthy. As a church that's rooted in the life of Jesus Christ. For isn't it true that his affection calls forth our own. It's his steadfastness in affliction that calls forth our own. It's his love and holiness revealed at the final coming that demands our constant attention. These then are qualities that belong to a healthy church community. Noticeable affection. Inevitable affliction. But also eternal attention. Of course on Jesus Christ himself for a healthy church community is one rooted and founded in the Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us in the midst of all of our frailties and our shortcomings that we might know the true power of the Spirit that resides within us that calls us to Jesus Christ, that conforms us to his likeness, that is building us up into a dwelling place for you. Lord, we do pray particularly for this church, for this congregation, that we might know the joy, the peace, the happiness, and the holiness that comes in a healthy church community. Father, we know the various ways in which we so often have not obeyed, the various ways in which we are currently falling short, But Lord, give us that established and encouraged heart that we might find the comfort of Jesus Christ and so find the comfort in his community where he resides with us and his word and spirit ministers to us in the midst of all of our hardship and suffering. And we pray it all in his precious name.